Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and welcome once again to the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. And today we're looking at rate rises. Do we need them? Finance speculators spend an inordinate amount of time predicting how and when the US Federal Reserve, or the Fed as they're known, will change interest rates. They've already lifted rates once this year, and the predictions that they're going to do it two more times uh, before the year's out, possibly as soon as June for the next one. The reason given is always to keep the economy under control, to stop it from overheating, to prevent rampant inflation which supposedly is nudging the 2% mark right now, the rate that the Federal Reserve and most central banks around the world seems to think is about right. Uh, so Steve Keen is with us. Why, why, does it take, why does the world take so much interest in US interest rates? What is, a, is it to a country like Australia or the UK, what the Federal Reserve decides to do with US interest rates? Well, you have to have, you have to actually look at two reasons. There's, 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 the, there's the practical reason and the mythical reason. And the practical reason is that if you have uh, big interest rate differentials between countries, uh, and particularly when those rates are extremely low as they are now, then people in the low-rate countries are going to be looking to, go to put their money into, into speculative objects in the high-rate country and make a double whammy gain because, first of all, they get a high rate and they get them back at home. And secondly, they also expect currency appreciation largely because they're buying the currency. Right. So it's, it's one of these self-fulfilling prophecies. And it's actually got a little nickname. It's called the, I think it's called the Mrs. Watanabe effect. I might have my, my pronunciation wrong, but uh, you know, have a, a Japanese housewife trying to invest the family finances, uh, normally the wives of dentists, it appears, or dentists themselves, and, um, and they pour money into buying Australian uh, share, uh, bonds when they're more expensive, when they give a higher yield rather than Japanese. They used to do it for American when the Japanese rate was below the, uh, below the American rate. So that's the practical reason. Right. There's okay. also a mythical reason. And that's what economists think interest rate controls the economy. We'll get to that one in a while. <laughs> all right. Well, one of those people who, uh, who perhaps thinks that is, uh, is Donald Trump, because uh, first of all, he lambasted the Fed for not raising rates fast enough before the election. Now he wants low <clears throat> rates. So uh, which, one is, which one is right? I would have thought presumably he'd want uh, the rates to be low because he doesn't want the, uh, he, you know, that, that situation you described. If, if interest rates rise, then that's going to push up the value of the, uh, the US dollar because there's going to be more demand for the US dollar. That is going to make it much more difficult for him to export stuff uh, effectively, which is, you know, he wants to try and uh, regenerate the economy. It's going to be harder for him to do that with, uh, with uh, if, you know, if, if exports are more expensive. Yeah, well, that's the practical and that's the effective reasons why it matters as well. And, um, and this is one of the, uh, the problems right now that we have economists varying interest rates uh, expecting they're going to have impacts on economic activity. And what they really have impact on more than, more than that is uh, relative exchange rate levels. So it would undermine Donald's ambition to um, have an export-led American recovery if, uh, if the American dollar got more expensive. So why wouldn't everyone just say, well, no, let's keep the rates low? If, I mean, if, if, if you're a, a country that wants to try and raise your, uh, your export levels, 
Why wouldn't you just say, yes, let's keep interest rates low? Well, this is actually Keynes' argument. He argued that the real rate of interest, the base rate should be as close to zero as possible. He was in favour of very low rates. And part of the logic was that uh, it's basically just a way of getting profit for the financial sector. It doesn't actually uh, do much to um, boost investment. Uh, as the as the mainstream argues, that he said keeps the cost for the financial sector low and provide more of the money for the real sector that actually does the does the manufacturing that you know, has, has borrows the money from the finance sector to enable the investment to take place. But then, if the interest rates are low, pays less back to the financial sector and has more available for actual investment. It's a bit like in that sense, a bit like. Uh, uh, Ricardo's arguments uh, a couple of centuries ago, which people interpreted as being in favour of free trade and things of that nature, he was actually trying to get as much money in the hands of the capitalists and as little as possible in the hands of the rentiers to enable growth to go on for longer. So a similar sort of argument goes there. And a lot of, the, um, a lot of non-Orthodox economists argue that the base rate should be zero. Right. Or, or something. But fixed. I mean, if, if what if what if I, mean, I know this is uh, a, a flight of fancy, and uh, I'm living in La Land, La La Land a bit on this. But if uh, but if, the, if if there was an agreement to just fix interest rates everywhere around the world, what would that do? Well, in, in fact, one, intriguing. There's an excellent book on statistics called Data Reduction by a guy called Ehrenberg, one of the the great uh, practical appliers of, of statistics. And of all things, in his book, which is written back in the I think in the um, in the late 1960s, data reduction, uh, he argued, he, he used the interest rate as an example of a constant. Right. So the, the, uh, the massively varying interest rates only started to happen when we first of all had a dramatic increase in the rate of inflation uh, in after the 50s and 60s when the rate of inflation was down at about the 2% level as it's uh, taken to be right now. Uh, and then it rose to um, um, 17%. And in an attempt to control the interest rates, the Vokla uh, can, can control Fed Reserve when Vokla was the, the Fed chairman, put rates up to 17%. Now, the idea was that by making, and this was again where myth, myth comes in rather than reality, the idea was that would uh, cause the level of investment to rapidly drop, um, re, re, basically get the price level to reset because economic theory, uh, the neoclassical mainstream economic theory, says that changes in monetary variables only affect nominal factors, i.e. the price level. They don't affect, re- affect real factors, which simply reflect people's expectations of long-term, long-run returns. And the idea was the economy would rapidly uh, drop the in- in- inflation rate in response to the higher interest rate, and then you go back to equilibrium again. Well, that was uh, the equilibrium they experienced was the, uh, the 90s recession, that, that why, uh, the, uh, or the recessions in the 80s and the 90s that uh, led to political change. The recessions were so severe. Um, so the, the practical impact of high rates is to, is to stop people borrowing money in the first place. And by doing that, you eliminate credit demand in the economy and the economy tanks. So that's the practical reason why this stuff matters. And that's why that's what the, I think the Federal Reserve is going to find the hard way when they start putting up rates in the belief they're simply going to control the rate of inflation. Um, because they have this belief in what they call the natural rate of in, natural rate of interest, as well as what they see as a natural rate of in, inflation, and that's the real driving force behind all the stuff. There's a set of numbers, the two, three, fours, and the uh, the 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 two uh, percent is the rate of inflation they think that should apply overall. Three percent is the rate of economic growth that they think should apply, and four percent is the target rate of interest. Right. So they put the interest rate up too high, and then uh, then people spending decreases. 
Yeah, but they think it's just a it's just an adjustment thing. This, this is this is again why they always get surprised by the real world. And this is what the Japanese central bank has been going through for 25 years now. Every time they think that the economy is adjusting and they see the inflation rate start to tick up, they then put the interest rate up in the belief this is going to do a bit of a mild adjustment. Uh, so that there's uh, the, the belief is that if they get the natural rate, if if, if they set the their rate, what they call the natural rate of interest, then there'll be neither inflation nor deflation. And in fact, their target is 2%, so they'll get in and stick at a 2% rate of inflation. Instead, what happens, if you put up those, those costs, when the level of debt is as high as it is right now, which is they, they, they consider the flow of new money, they, they do not consider the outstanding stock of debt because to their economic model, that doesn't matter at all. Yeah. But because the outstanding stock of debt is so high, when they put that rate up, that is cut substantially into people's headroom, whether that's individuals and households or, or corporations making investment plans. Uh, and they therefore decide not to borrow because they don't borrow, they don't create credit, and the economy tanks again. And then you go through the same old rinse and repeat process. They drop rates in response to an economy that is unexpectedly declining. Uh, the economy then goes back into leveraging up again, and bang, we go back and repeat the same bloody process. <laughs> All right. Now, you described at the beginning a situation where, you know, I said, why does it matter uh, what happens in America? And, you know, part of the argument was, well, uh, because money will move to America if the interest rate is higher in America than it is in other parts of the world. So doesn't that mean then that if America was to, you know, substantially move its interest rates over the next uh, next year or two, other countries like Australia, the UK, Europe would have to follow, wouldn't they? Otherwise, they'd have this big outflow of capital. Yeah, well, that's, that's the dilemma. And, um, and that's why America matters for the rest of the world. It's all these currency adjustments. I, I think uh, we, we... But by the way, for listeners, we, this, this is being recorded on my phone because we've had, had three attempts to get the <laughs> internet working. And one of the very first investments I'm doing, courtesy of my Patreon patrons and funding is today i'm going to buy a cable internet system so we fill on i don't have these bloody hassles and recording our podcast anymore that would be good where was i back to the question <laughs> i said uh we were <laughs> to- <laughs> i knew you i knew you had to get that out um my, my, oh, I'm <laughs> so fucking angry. Pardon, pardon my french people but i'm an australian angry that- at this that is nothing Technology compared to now. what I heard before we started recording this, let me tell you. Uh, so, look, yeah, my point My <laughs> point was, I mean, doesn't everybody have to respond if, if America responds? And I guess the, the follow-on to the, I think yeah. you're saying, yes, it does. So the follow-on is to that is, what happens if uh, if that economy can't afford it? If you push push interest rates up in a in a, a country like Australia, which we're going to talk about next time, which has uh, which is highly leveraged and an increase in interest rates could have quite catastrophic effects because of so much housing debt. Yeah, but this, this is the, the overall... Uh, problem because the, the the rate set by the Federal Reserve is is not the rate of course that's charged by private banks. It's the rate that the banks themselves charge each other. If they borrow reserves from each other, they, they have a need to do so, and that's the normal situation. So the the, the way that these rates work is that if you, uh, if you if you bank at Barclays and I bank at Lloyd's and you buy something off me, then there's a transfer from Barclays to Lloyd's. Uh, of the reserves exactly equal to the transaction you and I do. And as it happens that, you know, one of those, I'm, I'm, the main doesn't matter. This Barclays is, is the one that gets, that gets the money sent from it. Then it might have no reserves and it goes to negative reserves. It has 30, 30 to 90 days, depending upon the national situation and national regulations to get those reserves back up above zero again. And the easiest way to do that is to borrow back the money that it's transferred 
uh, when, when the transaction you and I caused to happen uh, hit those two banks. So they're, they're borrowing money from each other all the time, and the rate they'll borrow at is the rate set by the Federal Reserve. Now, if you find it, if, if a bank uh, can't actually manage to borrow money off other banks in the system, and that can be because the, you know, the, over, over the long term, the, the level of required reserves now exceeds the amount that's in, in the system, they can borrow those directly from the, from the Fed or from the relevant central bank at what they call the discount rate. And that's the rate set by you know, federal open FOMC meetings in America and so on. If that rate goes up, that's what they see as their base cost of funds. And their, their markup will be, uh, for the retail investors, they'll charge that plus their cost of funds plus their, their profit margin. So movements in that reserve rate, if you live in a country with flexible uh, loan rates, particularly mortgage interest rate rates these days, America is not one of those countries, but Australia is, uh, then your rate will go up. So it, it, it and it will affect it'll be people and LIBOR rates are affected by it and so on. So all these things affect the cost of finance. And the reason it has so much more of an impact now than it had 30 or 40 years ago is because the aggregate level of private debt being carried globally is four times what it was uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And therefore these movements. They're now talking at a quarter percent rate, and they're least to talking one percent. Yeah, well, it's an inter- there's an interesting survey from the University of Michigan, Michigan recently that showed what percentage of consumers say business conditions are favourable or unfavourable because of government decisions or because of elections. And I think included in that, they're talking about government decisions, including Federal Reserve decisions. Those saying that uh, government decisions uh, impacted unfavourably. Uh, look, during the 80s and 90s and the first part of this century, it was normally around 5%, but from 2010, mm-hmm. it skyrocketed. It's often 20, 25, sometimes 30% who think that mm-hmm. these decisions are having a, an influence on the economy. So it seems like, you know, yeah, 30 years ago, as you're saying, perhaps not much influence from the government, um, but something has changed. And that change you're saying is because, yes, we are carrying so much debt. So even a minor movement in interest rates impacts everybody. Yeah, and that's the danger now. That's why the reserve moves in small increments. But it's also why, uh, and this is, the, 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 you know the old what's the old saying about those who those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it. One of my favourite cartoons has historians that those who those who do study history are condemned to watch others repeat it, and that's been my situation since I did my my work on Minsky way back in the beginning in, in the late eighties uh, to watch this happen as the levels of private debt rose, which I knew the mainstream economists were ignoring. Uh, even though it had an impact on their decisions because they could no longer put rates up by the 1% rates they used to do. But as they've let that level of private debt rise, which they think doesn't matter economically, of course because it does, that therefore means their decisions have much more impact upon uh, everyday life because now we're carrying you know, four to six times the burden of debt we used to carry and therefore changes in that cost of finance don't affect their decisions to invest in a direct sense. They don't have bugger all impact on how much you value a future investment, but they do affect your capacity to service your current debt, and therefore you will stop taking out credit and the economy tanks. Now, I know you're saying that you know the, uh, the, the conventional economists don't accept that the debt has any influence. Yet we are starting to see, aren't we? Mm. From minutes from the uh, from those uh, RBA minutes uh, meetings in the US, and, and uh, sorry, the Federal Reserve minutes in the in the US. Uh, but also RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the minutes from their meetings, you know, they are indicating that they are pontificating over the impact of uh, of interest rate rises on household debt. In fact, I think, you know, the RBA is getting very concerned about it. So there's an acknowledgement now that maybe debt is an issue here. 
Yeah, but they don't understand why. And this is what's so bloody <laughs> annoying from my point of view because, uh, I mean, one of my favourite statements by, by Reserve Bank Governor was by the uh, previous Governor of the Australian RBA, uh, Glenn Stevens, giving a speech in Sydney, I think in 2009, saying, I know of no one who warned of this, uh, this set of circumstances. And I thought, I, know, I wrote a blog post that down my debt inflation blog saying, no of no one. Um, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd been like, a, like a, a bout of measles over the Australian media, as you know, saying all this stuff was going to happen. I, I wasn't completely alone, but uh, certainly I was the loudest. And, uh, and then when he got to the uh, parliament to excuse his statement, somebody challenged him on that very basis. And he said, well, I, I don't know anybody who predicted, you know, that Lermans would fail on this date and so on, so I would go on that date. And I thought, what a specious bloody answer, because frankly, the only, only reason you could actually justify an answer like that would be if your own models had the capability and they don't even have finance inside them. So it was an outrageous uh, diversion. But the reality is when you read the literature, and of course I have read the, the minutes of the FOMC, and, uh, which is about the only central bank that does publish their deliberations, they clearly haven't got a clue. Mm. They, they're worried about the scale because it's so big, but they don't know why the fact that it's so big matters. Mm. And what they look at is, is, is thinking that people are going to, to um, you know, not be able to service the debt, and they then say, well, in fact, it's held by the rich households and they've got the money capacity, et cetera, et cetera. They never consider the role of that change in debt in adding to demand because, according to their theories, it doesn't. Yeah. Therefore, they miss out on the major impact of it. They don't see that if that demand for, for borrowed money ceases, then a large part of expenditure, net gross expenditure in the economy, disappears and the economy tanks. And that's why I get so fed up watching this stuff, because it's, like it's like watching somebody who thinks that, that icebergs are all below hull level. Right. So what they, the, their level of thinking probably is just the extent that there will be some people defaulting on their loans. And so... Uh, yeah, that's right. And, yeah. And, and, that's you know, as far and, as it'll go. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah but, but, but their, their deliberations always come down to, oh, well, can they afford it? And is that the only question? Looking like they might not be able to afford it, that's the problem. The real problem is they'll stop borrowing the money in the first place and a substantial part of demand will disappear virtually overnight. And when it does, you'll be forced to reverse direction on interest rates again, which, if you check the data in Japan, is what they've been doing for 15 years. Mm. 25, if you go right back to when the crisis began back in 1990. So it's incredibly frustrating for me to watch all this stuff. Now, one influence of whether the Fed is going to raise rates or not uh, this year and next is going to depend on how much Donald Trump's government pumps into the economy with, the, with the, his fiscal stimulus program. Probably not much, mm. as, we've, uh, you know, as we've talked about. It's probably not going to happen. But if he did... Uh, then, you know, the talk is, well, yeah, he's pumping all this money in. That's going to be, uh, uh, you know, inflationary. Uh, therefore, the Fed raises right rates. So don't we have the government then and the Fed counteracting each other? Aren't they sort of working at, at loggerheads to try and achieve completely yeah, polar outcomes? They are, and that's, that's what's going to be fun to watch. I mean, the, there's never been a, a president like Donald Trump. That's an obvious statement. But his capacity to bluster and intimidate uh, and, and can directly confront, rather than doing polite channel stuff, which is the standard thing for a, for a president when this sort of clash occurs, uh, there will be outright confrontation. He also apparently has a capability. I've got to check this up. I've just seen this mentioned recently. Some capability to uh, affect the appointment of Federal Reserve governors and therefore members of the yeah, FOMC. Yeah. 
So it could come, you know, it could come down to fairly substantial direct political impact, putting his own cronies. And obviously, I'm not using that word. <laughs> it's not an exaggeration to call the people he appoints that uh, put them into into the, into the board. Um, and, and that itself would be an intriguing experience because though they might be his cronies, at least they run real businesses and they're going to get a shock when they find the sort of advice that, that is being put forward by the so-called professional economists in places like the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Well, no, he does have that ability and I think Janet Yellen's, uh, you know, due for replacement in about a year. Replacement, make it sound like a, yeah, sort of an old piece of machinery. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, he's basically been saying, well, he quite likes her at the moment, you know, so he's evaluating her, you know, so he's, you know, making it very clear uh, that the decision is his. But just talking about yeah. Janet Yellen, who's the uh, the governor of the uh, Federal Reserve, what would you do right now if you were her, if that was, if you were, you know, heading up the Fed in the US, what would your decision be? Well, again, my, my approach would be the whole modern debt jubilee, which is the last thing yeah. Yellen's going to have the guts <laughs> to do. For sure. Uh, or, or they need the power, because to, do, to make that direct uh, transfer into bank accounts, you really have to do a, a, a link with the Treasury at the same time. So that's what I'd be doing. I mean, the, the worry that the American economy has is that it's now got an accumulated private debt level in terms of non-financial sectors, so that's households plus non-financial businesses, of 1.5 times GDP, uh, it's growing at about the credit the level of credit, which is the rate of change of private debt, is about seven percent of GDP right now. That's growing faster than the physical economy by some substantial margin, and that's what's dragging the economy up. Now, uh, the reason she's going to fall into a trap of doing the wrong thing and putting rates up to think she's going to be fine-tuning the economy is that their little model, the the what they call the the DSGE dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that guide their economists and tell them what's going to be the impact of any of their policy changes, has these magic numbers seared into them. 2% rate of, of, uh, of inflation, 3% rate of economic growth, 4% target rate. That's what they think is the natural rate of interest. So they're going to move in that direction. That's, that's where the pressure is really coming from. It's not so much from the business signals as as the, the, the fact that the economy is moving in roughly in that direction, but then oh, we've got to get back to this two, three, four set of numbers. Yeah, yeah. So got to got to reach that's equi- equi- real danger. Got to reach equilibrium. I've got to ensure equilibrium exists. Is basically yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> and this is the funny thing. It's a Deus Ex machine of assuring market equilibrium. They just, they just the, the, the inability of these people to develop a sense of irony is, is really quite remarkable. Yeah, that is. I, I mean, there's an irony though, isn't it? Because the uh, yeah, because the economy is supposed to find equilibrium by itself, and yet we've got the having to do it for what it. What are you buggers doing here? Yeah. <laughs> what do we need you at all? Well, that's an interesting question. I won't ask that one, though. But let's go back to the question I did ask, which you sort of half answered, uh, in that you said, yes, you you know, if you were Janet Yellen, you'd have the uh, the debt jubilee. But yeah, man, yeah. Let's imagine that actually takes a little while to work on, that you can't do that in your first day in the job, and you've uh, there's a mm. the, the Fed Reserve's meeting, and they've got to make a decision. Are they going to raise interest rates? In June, for example, w- what would you be doing? Would you be saying, uh, yes, let's go for it, or no, let's, you know, what for the next 12 months, what is the future for America and the world? Are we better off with a, a low interest rate future? We'd be better off with a low interest rate. Um, <laughs> the, the trouble is, I mean, they, they've really got themselves caught in a, a number of, uh, of Faustian bargains here. And uh, one of the most important we haven't discussed today is the other policy the, the Fed's been following, the quantitative easing, because that's maintaining consistent pressure upon share prices in particular, and then also property prices and causing bubbles in both of those markets that are now becoming... Um, um, really off the scale levels of, of overvaluation, particularly the share market in America. Now, the trouble is, if they cut that QE program out, then the market will fall. 
And, of course, the major political limitation on her behaviour is really not the economy, it's what happens to the stock market. The stock market starts going down. All, all the financial people, which are really the only um, uh, industry people they talk to, are going to be screaming about the losses they're making. And they'll go back and reverse and go back into QE again. So in, in that sense, it's, it's, uh, you're, what you're asking is, will I change place? Would I change places with Faust? The answer is no. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, so uh, look, if you want to know more about QE, go back to episode 26, by the way, uh, when we did discuss uh-huh. that. Uh, so uh, okay. Look, next time uh, we're going to talk about the situation in Australia. I'm sure we'll talk about Canada as well because it's a similar situation there. But um, uh, I just want to finish on this point then. If we do see the Reserve Bank, uh, the, sorry, the, the Federal Reserve in the, in the US lifting interest rates, what does that mean for the Australian economy and the Canadian economy? Because presumably Australia well, would, in, would need to react, in, wouldn't it? In fact, what it does is it takes a bit of pressure off them because for the last six years, the, the Australia's Reserve Bank has been praying that the Federal Reserve would put rates back up again because that would have taken pressure off the exchange rate. And uh, of course, the exchange rate when we had the when Australia had the mining boom at the same time was hitting you know, one dollar twenty virtually uh, US for each Australian dollar, and that was crueling the manufacturing sector. Now, the damage has already been done there. But if the Fed Reserve puts up rates, and you're in a country which has a higher rate of interest, uh, then it takes the arbitrage pressure off you. No. Of course, most of the rest of the world are talking. You know, obviously, the UK, uh, clearly Europe, Japan as well. Uh, that'll go in the opposite direction. So if the Federal Reserve rates go up, they can expect the American dollar to increase in value, which will reduce their uh, currency costs, of course, and therefore mean they're more competitive exporting into the American economy. So they'll be quite happy about it, but of course that's going to make Donald scream again because, bang, the currency manipulators... Yeah, of course. Welcome, Any- to, welcome, <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to government. Yep. We're speaking of bargains with the devil. Working, welcome to government, Donald. Well, maybe you're the cause of the currency manipulation, Donald. Maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the real issue. All right. Well, uh, we shall leave it there. We'll try, as I say, we'll talk about Australia and Canada next time. Look, we, I, th- I think we've look, we've done forty or so podcasts uh, in this series. So I think next time it's only fair that we actually go back to where it all started, which is the Australian housing crisis, uh, because it's no, been yeah, going on for yeah. so long. So let's get back to basics next time. Good to talk. Okay, mate. Bye. And we'll try and get that one out to you uh, later on this week. That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. Uh, I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.